this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So when's the last time you read a book on selling your company? My guess is you've never read a book on selling your company. Why bother when the only books out there read like textbooks filled with acronyms and terms you've never heard of written by people who make it their job to make themselves look and sound smarter than you? Why bother? Well, the art of selling your business tries to do exactly the opposite. It features the stories of the founders I've listened to for the podcast. I've taken their best practices, their secret hacks, and bundled them into a storytelling format so that you can take away the key lessons, the action plan, the the field guide without sifting through the boring textbook that is most books on the topic of selling your company. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. People always say curiosity is the entrepreneur's killer app. It's the ingredient that you need to be a successful business owner. While I agree curiosity is important, I actually think there's another personality trait that could be even more important, and that's discipline. As you grow your business, there are going to be so many temptations along the way that I believe that it is the entrepreneur who can remain disciplined to their original idea, the original value proposition, the person they want to serve and the product they want to offer. If you're able to stay disciplined, I think you will find that serves you well. It served my next guest, Andy Cabasa, quite well. Andy built a company called Juris Page, sold it to another Inc. 5000 business, Uptime Legal, in a seven-figure exit. And I want you to listen for how tempting it was for Andy to do two things. One, take non-recurring clients. And two, take clients that fell outside of his niche and just listen to the discipline he had in saying no to both of those opportunities. Here to tell you the entire story is Andy Cabasso. Andy Cabasso, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. Juris Page sounds very formal. Tell me about this company. What did you guys do? Uh, we did marketing, web design, uh, SEO, paid search for law firms specifically. Such a cool niche because lawyers are great at their their shtick. You know, whether they're defense attorneys or commercial real estate lawyers, but are generally terrible marketers, right? Well. Uh, I kind of got into it because I was in law school and I was applying to work at some different law firms. And most all of the websites of the firms that I was applying to were very bad. Uh, And so I figured I could do something about this. And I connected with uh, my co-founder, who was actually a former roommate of mine in college. And we started working together. He brought the web design experience. I brought the ability to speak to lawyers and market to lawyers. And it kind of took off from there. Did you actually get a law degree or did you leave early? Yeah. So I am a licensed lawyer. I'm not like disbarred or anything like that. Uh, but I, yeah, I 
I practiced very briefly for a short time uh, while Juris Page was growing. And then I realized, okay, this is a growing business. Time to make a decision here because uh, I couldn't do, I couldn't focus on both. And so I uh, spent my time on Juris Page. Got it. So web design, SEO, pay-per-click for lawyers. That's right. Did you host their websites or just build them? Yep. Everything. So one thing that was kind of like key for us, and this came from my really my co-founder's experience was he was freelancing for several years uh, prior to us working together, going from like project to project, doing some web design work. And uh, I guess a few things that, that he had found frustrating were uh, one was the lack of like recurring revenue uh, where he'd be going from project to project. And once he'd stop working on a project, it's kind of like feast or famine. You have to hunt and keep looking for new project work. Otherwise, you're not getting paid, not bringing in any money. And so taking a vacation could be difficult. And so we made sure that from the beginning with working on working for different clients at Juris Page that every client would have some sort of ongoing service being provided to them, uh, whether at the very least it was hosting and providing support for their websites or doing ongoing marketing services like uh, paid search or SEO and content marketing and things like that. We, of course, over the years, plenty of people reached out to us who said, hey, can you just design my website, give it to me, and then let me take it and go elsewhere? And we just said, uh, you know, I recommend there plenty of places that can do that for you, but that's not our model. Um, and I'll, I'm happy to give a recommendation. But for the most part, we found that people were pretty receptive to it because people are busy. Like a lot, a lot of, especially lawyers and smaller firms that we were targeting, no one wants to be tinkering around with their own website when their billable hour is like $300 plus an hour. They don't need to be making tweaks to their site. They could just call us up and we can uh, help them out. Andy, I think a lot of people listening to this are saying, I get it. I know I should focus on recurring revenue, but I'm not sure if I have the courage to say no to a customer who wants to pay on a one-off basis. It, it was <laughs> mentally, it's tough, right? When you see someone who's in front of you saying, I have a check, I want to give you money, take my money. And it was also the case similarly that we had some clients that were one that wanted our services who were not in the legal space, who were in a different market and wanted us to design a site for them. And we turned them away too, because that wasn't the market that we were going after. Like in our, in our best case scenario, we would have a law firm client, we'd be doing their website and doing their ongoing marketing. But for uh, a simple one-off project, there's no opportunity for expansion revenue there. We could start simply like hosting and building and hosting a law firm's website. And then over time, as they're looking to get into marketing, upsell them on a marketing service and bring more recurring revenue from them. But for someone in a very, in like a different space, we couldn't have, there would be no opportunity for that for us. And for like a one-off project, it just wasn't worth the time investment for the, for the one-off there. What was the closest you came to falling off the wagon? <laughs> um, in, term, in terms of in what? Either 
taking non-lawyer clients or taking one-off clients who would not give you any sort of recurring tail. Either, I, you know, those just seem like those are two fundamental legs of your strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think they're give you monopoly control and they're hugely differentiating and build the value of your company and really hard to stick to. Because <laughs> you get, as you say, people <laughs> flashing checks in front of you saying, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm a real estate agent. And you do great work for lawyers. So come help me with my real estate, you know, whatever. How close did you come to falling off the wagon? Not that close. Maybe, if anything, maybe earlier on, uh, before we had built up a solid book of business and had a solid amount of leads coming in every month, were we maybe on the fence and a little bit more open to just getting a getting a project of a client that wasn't legal related? But the thing is that we recognized was we had built this domain expertise in law firms. We could easily and quickly build up a law firm site from scratch a lot faster than we could build a site for a real estate agent mm. uh, who would have more complex requirements. Uh, actually, part, I, part, part of what was in kind of important to this was we weren't just building recurring revenue, but we were also building a productized service. So it wasn't like we'd go from one project that would want like, I want all of these WordPress plugins, or I want all of these unique features specifically for us that really wasn't something that we had done before. We had a very specific scope, like we had packages that, that clients could choose from. And we that for us, it was important because this made it more repeatable. So we could easily go like easily, more easily, take on new projects, have our assembly line process for it that was repeatable, that could help us over time as we, as we took on more and more clients, add more team members, plug them into the process and be able to serve more clients easily. But taking on one client that, that can't work within that mold, that has unique needs, uh, kind of throws a wrench into all of it. And so we <laughs> kind of had to step back and realize this, that this client was going to be more time intensive, that it was going to require things that we maybe weren't set up for already. And would it, would it even be worth the, the, our, our time investment where the end product that they would get, that would be great, but there are no real lessons that we could learn from that for future clients of ours, because none of the assets that we're creating uh, none of the project work that we're doing would be reusable potentially Got for it. any future projects. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So a lot of people listening to this will be saying, okay, I, I kind of get, I think, productized services, but maybe they're still selling their time or you know, they're selling their you know, project-based work mm-hmm. and they are about to create a productized service. And for folks, if you don't know mm-hmm. what a productized service is, effectively, it's where you package up a service, you make it tangible, make it real, make it repeatable, as you say, Andy. So I'd be curious to know, like, what mistakes did you make in your first productized services? Like when you first scoped out your packages, what was the biggest mistake you made in, in scoping them out? I like this question. Um, uh, 
we this is something that we we quickly learned over time we we needed to hone in on but specifically defining the limits of the scope so one good example was redesign rounds so uh basically our process was we designed the webs like you give us some ideas we have a uh, initial conversation and consultation you give us the assets we need we design the site then you review it make some tweaks and then we make those changes and launch the site well before we added more strict language into like our agreements uh we might have some clients who would go back and forth with us for months um another thing would be uh the way that we like do pricing so uh the earliest iteration we did pricing at milestones based on like a deposit based on when we started and then uh, another payment based on like when we provide the first iteration and then another milestone payment at launch uh one problem that we encountered for honestly as long as we well, as long as I I was there was that some clients would sign up we'd get going and then they would disappear and then like we and then we'd be like trying to play phone tag for months to and sending lots of emails to get them to respond to our inquiries to get us the assets we needed like their bio pages their headshots so many times uh, i would hear oh i'm i'm working on my bio content uh give me a few weeks because i got other pressing stuff to do or uh i'm getting my headshot taken next month we're getting we're hiring a photographer give me some time or just completely disappearing so then we had to adapt and be like our our payment terms would would be something like uh a deposit on uh sign up and then another milestone payment either on launch or within or in like 3 months whichever comes first <laughs> nice um cuz I, i a lot of web designers can probably empathize we had some clients who were 3 years uh out sure. where they signed up and just disappeared did you ever run into i mean lawyers are lawyers <laughs> they're they're mm -hmm. they're into contracts and the details did you ever run into lawyers who are like kind of picking over the legal contract and and pushing back on some of the terms yes that happened i can think about like two or three times that that happened and it was never like it was like maybe once ever was it a deal breaker and honestly for me it was kind of like a red flag that they were like our contract was good it was fair it was reasonable and it was the same contract that we used for hundreds of clients but when a client would come in and say i want these changes and amendments to the agreement like i want the governing law of the contract to not be in new york where you're based but but uh california oh, where i'm california. based or wherever and my response was i'm sorry we can't we can't tailor this contract this specific contract just to you that is not sustainable for us to keep up for everyone you can either take it or leave it and like that was kind of that was important for us it was important to have pushback where we needed to have pushback and if there were ever maybe an occasion where someone would bring something up where we'd be like oh that's an interesting point we'll 
moving forward, maybe we'll amend the agreement. But that really did, I think that maybe happened once where someone pointed out like, hey, do you have any, like, I haven't, like, I saw the contract and you're missing this one thing. I'm like, oh, that's probably a good thing to have. But for the most part, we were very straightforward in our, in our contract, in our terms. We weren't hiding anything. There wasn't anything that was weird or off. And I know the web design space and a lot of the, some other companies I'll say, uh, had more unfair terms. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so I know a lot of lawyers in particular had been burned before things like, uh, as an example, like there are some marketing agencies, especially the larger ones where they would say, uh, you sign up with us, you're paying a marketing fee per month and we'll do the website for you and we'll do the marketing for you, but you can't, you don't really own your website. You don't get, if you cancel your service, you don't get an export of the website and you can't move it somewhere else. You don't own even the content of it. Um, so you weren't doing that. You, you had a much better agreement. Got it. So like, but I understood. And so like being mindful of that, I was under making sure that we wrote a very fair contract. And I understood when clients would come in potentially being skeptical, if they told us, oh, I was previously with this other agency, that would be a good flag for me because I would know, all right, so they've gone from this agency, they've been burned before. Now I know how to couch our conversation and tailor it best, uh, so that they, so that they'll, cause like, they're not going to be trusting now of anyone. Yeah. How so, did that, yeah. you, you know, when you've yeah. got, when, when the, the lawyer can't export their own data, it obviously keeps them sticky because yeah. it creates a, a, a built-in sort of churn, uh, friction, if you will. Mm-hmm. How did allowing owners or lawyers to walk away with their data impact your churn rates? It, it didn't like it did. Yeah. It wasn't really a big problem for us. Churn wasn't a big problem. No, the, I mean, I guess a, a fear that I, that one might have, like, especially early on would be like, all right, well, if we let people export then they can take it with like, stay with us for a month and then move to sure. their own, service and platform, but that didn't end up being what we were running into. Like if we were delivering for them on, uh, on keeping their website up, handling all of their support inquiries, managing the site for them, they were seeing the value that they were getting from it. If they signed, like there were plenty of clients where they'd sign up, we'd deal with it. And they, we never heard from them. Others where we'd hear from them several times a month with here are new team members, please add them to the site. And we'd take care of that others where we were doing the ongoing marketing for. And so if we were delivering them the results, there's no reason that they're going to want to change services. Got it. Got it. When it came to productizing your service, part of Mm -hmm. that is the repeatable nature of Mm -hmm. what it is you offer. How did you get employees to follow your processes? So we built uh, SOPs, so standard operating procedure documentation. We basically built docs that outline every step of the process, the project management software that we were using. Uh, I think the earliest software we were using for project management was like Trello. And so we had a long doc that was 
basically a lot of like like uh, walkthroughs and checklists. Here are the things that the site needs at this stage and this stage and this stage. Um, like once a client signs on, uh, we send them this and this and this uh, and request all of this stuff from them. We send them this link to this portal. Um, and then we don't start, uh, we don't move them to the next stage until we get these assets that we need from them. If it's been five days or whatever, and we have not heard from them or not gotten the assets and not left this stage, now we need to ping them again. And you, yeah. got it. What did you learn about standard operating procedures and making them work inside your company? Because a lot of people create mm -hmm. them and then they become like shelfware or Dropboxware, never to be seen again. So what did you learn about making these things sticky actually work? It, well, to make them sticky with the, with the team members was uh, management like, like me um, or, or my, my partner, like reviewing the, reviewing the projects and the statuses week, like on a weekly basis. So I, like looking at what my team members have produced, looking at where everything is in the stage. Uh, and we'd have for each client, the checklist of where they're at and, and what's going on with them along with all notes. And so we could look at in, in a few seconds, look at a given client, see where they are, see what status they're in, see the checklist of what we have and what we're waiting on. And so with the, like the checklist in particular being necessary for us mm. to move to another stage, they had to be used, you know, without that, uh, with just like saying, here's our SOPs, follow it. Uh, you're then ripe for them not getting followed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's important to have checklists along the way. Um, I'd love to know sort of what triggered you to want to sell this business. So as you're growing it, you and Sam, how big did you get it before you started to think about selling? Like in terms of, I don't know if you share revenue or number of employees or some mm -hmm. proxy for size. So people kind of get it. Sure. Well, so we had a, I want to say, but, but it was about maybe 200 like clients that we were working with by the time mm -hmm. that we sold. Um, I'd say that um like at the at the time that we sold we weren't actively looking to sell we'd been approached by a few different people uh about selling like around the same time which is fortuitous but i yeah we weren't like actively looking to sell when the opportunity came around 200 clients what would that equate to in terms of number of full-time employees or equivalent like fte kind of headcount um, so yeah, so when we sold, there were, there were four of us who were full-time plus, uh, some additional contractors that we were working with. Got it. That's helpful for sure. Okay. So you're getting inbound, a couple of inbound inquiries from folks. What did you do with those? Um, I took skeptical phone calls. <laughs> like it, it. I'm like, I'm like, all right, am I being catfished? Is this a scamming attempt? What, what? does catfish means? I've never heard that before. You've never heard catfishing before? This must be a New York thing. I've like I've never no, heard catfish. No, no. It, it's it's like a uh catfish. <laughs> um okay. Uh the term catfish basically means uh presenting a fake 
profile online to deceive someone else. Uh, typically, it's in a romantic context. Uh, see, I don't do enough online dating. This is the problem I, between me and I, you, Andy. You're spending a lot of time online I, dating. I, I am, however, don't. <laughs> I've, I've been married for a long time. I am not online dating. I'm asking for a friend. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but yeah, there, there's a, a movie called Catfish. I think it's on Netflix. See, um, I'm, I'm totally but the stuff. Anyway. Uh, like, okay, I, so like, I get the, cash. <laughs> okay. All right, so now I have like, a pretty good sense of Catfish. All right, so like that's... The fear is like, who's this random person reaching out to us? Is it a competitor doing competitive intelligence? Um, is it like, is it real bona fide opportunity? Because um, over the years, out of the various business ventures that I've had, I've, I feel like a few times a year, someone reaches out about either acquiring or investing whatever I'm working on. And like, there are some serious people, some not so serious people. And <laughs> yeah, so like you're like when you first take that call, you might be like a little bit on your guard, like wanting to know, well, what what is it that the other side is looking for? What's the what's the ideal opportunity that they're looking for? And could it even be a good fit? So like, for example, I um I, I I've taken like I let's say I took a call with someone who's like looking to expand into a market and they're interested in my company. Um, like usually one of the first questions I ask is like, well, what are the criteria that you're looking for? And they'll say like, all right, well, we're looking for companies with uh, five to 10 million ARR. And then I'm like, okay, well, um, if we, like, if we don't like, we don't fit that, that criteria now is not a good time follow up in six months and let's see where we're at then or something like that. So you'll, but, you'll basically quiz them about their investment criteria to see if there's a fit because like a lot of a lot of investors and acquirers are strategic and have certain ranges that they're looking for and like i don't want to i don't want to waste your time uh, of going through an nda and due diligence process only to find out you're like all right this company is way too small any multiple that we're going to offer like it, it's not going to be high and it's not going to be what you're looking for it's um, it's not necessarily like a strategic acquisition, but so like, what are we even doing here right now? Let's wait until we're in the right criteria ranges. Yeah, you mentioned multiple. It, before mm -hmm. we get into the actual mm -hmm. sale, this is when you're still growing the company, mm -hmm. you're getting these inbound inquiries. What did mm -hmm. you and Sam think the company might be worth? on a multiple of either EBITDA or a multiple of revenue? Like what, had you guys had some conversations to say? Not at all. This like, Interesting this nothing. was, not, this was not even on our radar at the time. Um, mm. Like um, we like, yeah, we asked yeah, some like companies had pitched us like about um, like, just like soft inquiries about acquiring and we hadn't really taken them too seriously. We had had some dialogue, but not a lot. And so we hadn't, yeah, like we hadn't in, in, in the back of our minds, like we're not in like running the day-to-day -day business. We're not like looking at our balance sheets and income statements and being like, okay, we are now worth this or we're now worth this. That just seemed to me like a very vanity sort of thing and wasn't helpful for running our day-to-day. -day. But you must've had some sense of what it might be worth. Um, I, like, I guess big picture, I'm like, this is worth 
this is worth a lot more, like this is growing. And so I see the trajectory of it. It's probably worth like, if you were paying for the asset of where it is today, that's nothing that I'm particularly interested in because it's, I still thought we were pretty early stage. Uh, but if you're interested in acquiring it for like the long-term value that you see out of it, and there is potentially a strategic play, then it will be worth more. So, hmm. um, yeah. Interesting. Like, interesting. I think, I think a lot of like, like, and our company was only like, when we sold, we were three years old, a relatively young company, but, um, like, yeah, I'm sure like if you're, if your company that you're looking to get acquired is more mature at a later, at a later stage, um, you're probably going to be like, you know, thinking about like specific multiples and thinking about, all right, so this is the range that we'd be interested in. And when you're having these conversations with these shots over the bow, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, inbound inquiries, are they, mm -hmm. are they kind of throwing at any numbers with you on the phone? Like, are they giving you kind of multiples or like, are they throwing at any kind of bait, so to speak? Um, um, some of them, like some of them were, but we were just kind of like, um, it, it wasn't anything exciting to us. And so we said, uh, maybe, maybe it's not a good time now. Maybe we should follow, like, it was just kind of like the default, which is, uh, let's follow up in six months and see where we're at. Um, right. uh, because at that valuation, that's not particularly interesting to us. Like, are they kind of usually for small businesses, you know, you hear numbers like two to three times SDE, which is a pretty common multiple SDE mm -hmm. being seller's discretionary earnings, which is kind of like your profit and, the, and, mm -hmm. and anything you take out of the company, so to speak. Were those the kind of multiples they were throwing out broad, broadly speaking? Um, well, so they, they were, I guess, like, some like early, early people that we spoke to were like, like looking at kind of multiples on revenue, which was more interesting, but still not all that interesting to us. Mm -hmm. Like we were, we were a lean bootstrap business. Like if it was earnings based, we were, would not at all be interested because we were, yeah, like I said, being bootstrapped, we weren't drawing crazy salaries for ourselves. We were reinvesting everything uh, into the business to help it grow more. And so, yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. So what changed? At some point, conversation changed because you did get a conversation started with Uptime Legal, which is mm -hmm. uh, Inc. 500, 5,000 fastest growing company. Uh, how did that start? What was the... Sure. So I mean, this is probably a good broader tip for any business owner looking to get acquired is uh, make friends and build your business's network. So we had known Uptime for a few years. We had some mutual clients. And so Uptime, the a company that acquired us, provides uh, managed services for IT for specifically the law firm niche. And so we were in the same market. Uh, some of our clients had crossover, so they'd hire us for their web design. They'd hire Uptime for managing their servers and their practice management software and virtual machines for remote logging into their stuff. And that kind of thing. And so we like had had like a referral relationship that was pretty open where we'd send clients their way, they'd send clients our way. And we built these kinds of relationships with a few different companies um, because it helped us generate more business for ourselves. And so we were 
like for a small company, we were decently known in the space. Um, maybe more. So the more referral than, relationship, yeah. they yeah. send you a client, you pay them a spiff. Equally, they send you a client, you pay them a spiff. Uh, exactly. And Got we it. had relationships like that with a variety of companies. And So when did it go yeah. from referral to something more serious? Um, so we had, I think we'd met up at like a few conferences in the past and we were talking about meeting up at a conference and they kind of threw out of left field, like, Hey, do you have any interest in being acquired? And I said, probably not. <laughs> Is who's this? The CEO said that? Uh, yeah, the CEO. And so, uh, we, I was like, you know, we, I, uh, we've been in this company three years, we've been growing it. Um, I like the trajectory that we're on. I probably am not interested in selling unless you have some compelling offer and conversation from there went like we talked about, well, what they were looking for. And the thing is they were, we were, we're both very entrenched in the legal industry. They were looking to expand their product offerings, wanting to add a web design component uh, and digital marketing component to offer to their existing clients, as well as another revenue stream, the ability to cross sell, to their clients was particularly valuable, but they also had some uh, knowledge, like some institutional knowledge related to law, the law firm industry space that they thought they could take and apply to us to help us uh, better grow. And so they saw an opportunity in, in our much smaller business to help us grow faster and basically, yeah, uh, they saw like value in that. And yeah. So, I mean, I understand that. So the, the strategic value for them was they could sell Juris page services, your web design and SEO services to their existing clients who were using them mm -hmm. for other things. That was kind of. That, that know, was like, yeah, that, that was an aspect of it for sure. Yeah. That was, that, yeah, that's an obvious one. But the other one is less clear to me. So they had some sort of IP that they felt like they could inject into Jura's well, page. Maybe help me more, understand. more like we were uh, like, my company was a bit scrappier. Like I said, four full-time people in addition mm -hmm. to contractors and stuff like that. They are, they were a larger company with systems. And like, I am to this day, very impressed with how well they run their, how like how well they run their organization, how, methodical they are about their their growth, their numbers, their KPIs and things like that. Um, and they thought they could apply some of the like the of the growth principles that they applied to their business to ours. Like before, yeah, uh, before we even spoke with them, like business operating system was nothing at all on my radar. Um, uh, things like uh, you know, um, EOS traction, Rockefeller habits, that was nothing in my wheelhouse, um, but stuff that they were very plugged into. Got it. Got it. So they thought that they could bring some of their business rigor and acumen to your mm -hmm. platform and help you grow. And equally, yeah, they could probably grow by cross-selling your service. So it had a two-pronged value proposition. Mm -hmm. So he has, so your response is look, if, if you've got something compelling for me, let me know, but we're not really for sale. Where does it go from there? Um, from there, um, 
some a bunch of basically like a bunch of high level conversations where like why they were interested in acquiring us and then uh from there we were like all right like i see what why you're interested in this well then give us an idea a number of like like you know ndas due diligence all this stuff um we put together a pitch deck uh with highlights and stuff like that shared some documents um and then they came up with a valuation based on that uh then they make an offer we go back and forth what was your, then, your offer um i mean the initial offer i was like uh, no thanks um um i don't know uh for, uh, for <laughs> first uh, uh piece of advice uh, probably no matter what the first offer is say no right uh, and, and counter offer and and come back but but i'd be curious to know yeah. how you did that so your your reaction was like no thank you did well i mean a lot of times when people get that first offer it's like i can't believe how low this is i've just spent all this time screwing around with this company wasting my time and this is the offer they come up with like did you feel a sense of like what a waste of freaking time <laughs> no like i mean I, maybe I've, maybe I've been so jaded by the many conversations I've had in the past that I wasn't all that all expect, like, uh, like my response was like, I understand why you would want us for the best price that, that you could get, but like full disclosure that like, that's not something like that's not in the realm of what we're looking for. And if, if that's, you know, the range that you're looking at we're happy to like, here are some alternatives, like instead of you acquiring us, maybe we can have a more like just brainstorming here, some other partnership arrangements, referral arrangements and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, then, then we kind of went from there. Are you and Sam aligned at this point? Like did, what was Sam's reaction to their first offer? Um, kind of same thing. Like, uh, we didn't like, yeah, we were kind of, we were, we were pretty aligned on, on the first, like, no, not interested. Like, like if I like, yeah. <laughs> so what was their next step? So you're like, if this is it, no, thank you. Did they say, well, well what, offer, what number did you have in mind? Um, I remember back to that. Um, I'm sure that like, I'm sure that they were probably like, all right, well, counter uh, like like give us something well that, that's more what you're looking for and i'm sure what we gave was exorbitantly high <laughs> and did you did you counter though did you put a number uh, on the table and say like this i'm i'm sure we did um yeah, yeah it, it was probably yeah it, I, I remember generally the process being a bit back and forth um yeah Do you, was, again i know we spoke off line yeah uh, the fact that you can't um, really should un yeah unfortunately like there's not a number wise there's not a lot that i can speak to i guess what i can speak to is that end result the uh the uh sale price was uh, seven figures awesome and it would be helpful to know i think for folks kind of following along and again if you if you can share mm -hmm. this great if you can't totally sure. understand but are you able to kind of give folks a sense? Because here, here's the thing. 
mm-hmm. when you get, a, I'll call it a low ball offer. I'm not sure if that, that's not your words. Those are mine. But if you get an offer that's kind of below where you, where you want it to be, two ways you can play that, right? One, you could say thanks and plow on. Uh, thanks, but no thanks and plow on. Or another way you could say thanks, but no thanks. But here's an offer that would work for us. And so you can sort of, you can counter. Um, I guess let's a talk lot of strategy, people, <laughs> strategy well, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of people wondering about that second option. Um, um, is, is what is what to do around valuation? Because on one hand, you could, you could sort of throw out a reasonable number and keep the conversation going, but you may put a ceiling onto which you're you'll ever sell your company for. Equally, mm-hmm. you could throw out some outlandish number that is completely crazy, but could be so crazy that the acquirer will be like, okay, I don't want to be insulted either and walk. Well, How did you think through that? Well, at the end of the day, we weren't looking to be acquired. And so the, like the, there were, there was like our backs weren't against the wall it's easy for us to walk away, which is also a powerful position to be in mm-hmm. is if you, if you can walk away, uh, and you have nothing to lose, then, you know, then any, but the other side really wants the asset assets that you have, then hopefully they'll try to keep you at the table. So like our counter was, yeah, that's just not in the range that we're looking for. Here are some alternative arrangements that might be a good fit for us. That was just because we were like, we were kind of like, all right, well, if, if that's where you're, if that's the range that you're at, I, I don't think that's going to work. Uh, okay. But so counter- let me be clear. Your yeah. counter was not, you want X, we want three X. It was, that's not going to work. But what about if we deepen our referral partnership, we could do some other things. Mm-hmm. So you didn't that counter was, with another number. Yeah. And that was coming from like our position of like, all right, so I think, I think we're way off. So yeah. if it's not going to work, then here is here are some other things that we could do to work together because we would like to work with you, um, right. and just because of the positioning of both of us, like they were, they were they were still very interested in acquiring us. They were like, "All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let let's let's see what we can do." Um, and uh, then we, I, I think I think that was what it was. I think then we got a, a another counter offer, a, a sort um, of second offer. Yeah, um, you know as uh, you know, as negotiation experts will say, you know, never negotiate against yourself. If someone mm-hmm. says, says no to you, don't reply back with, with, all right, well, if that doesn't work for you, then how about this? Um, it was like, like, but like, we didn't want to like, honestly, I like, we're coming from the perspective of if we're not in the same range, then let's just not waste our time because mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to come back to you and give you, uh, 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 give you a counter offer that is way out of line with what you're looking for. So kind of, let's just, let's walk away and let's move on and not spend more time on this. Yeah. But, but they did come back, but, but they did like, they were, they were interested in this. And so, yeah. uh, yeah, they kind of put it for And are you able to share again, as long as we don't talk about mm-hmm. numbers or multiples, mm-hmm. are you able to share like their second offer? Was it, substantially more like two X more than the first or three X more than the first or a little bit better than the first. Like, are you able to share a little bit of color to give people a sense of, I actually um, don't remember. I mean, it was definitely more, it was, um, it got us closer into the realm. I I remember being like, all right, this is closer. And now we're at a point where like, if you are coming back to us, 
let's like you clearly are are very interested in this. Let's let's talk now and try and find a number that would work for all of us. Got it. And so at that point, did you throw out a number after the second offer? Probably, yeah. 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 What you know, a lot of times acquirers when they, you know, can't somehow get to an agreement, they'll use an earnout as a way to sort of bridge the gap between what they mm-hmm. want to buy your business for and what you want to sell it for. I noticed, I think in your LinkedIn page, it said you spent some time with Juris Page or at Uptime mm-hmm. Legal. So yeah. I assume there was an earnout or some some sort of contract. Are you able to share what what that was like? Uh, was that a big part of yeah. the deal? Well, so so part of the deal was that I stayed on for a few years. Um, yeah, and uh, I kind of assumed the role. Uh, like uh, one thing that like I guess made it more valuable and worth it to them was now I was stepping into a role where I was not only like running the division and showing them showing them how it worked. Um, I was also providing my marketing expertise to help the organization as a whole, and so I was able to deliver more value there as well. Got it. And how did you structure that? Was it, did you have certain targets you had to meet as a division of uptime or what was the sort of trigger that caused your second payment? Um, I cannot share that, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. No yeah. problem. But there was some target of some sort that it's, it's interesting because sometimes one of the, the most, most challenging things about an earnout is that it, it, um, the, the things that you're incentivized to do run counter to what the acquirer wants, right? So the classic would be that, mm-hmm. you know, they say, okay, we want you to hit a certain you know, profitability threshold as a division of our company. Yet out of the other side of their mouth, they're saying, we want to integrate you into our business. And, mm-hmm. and what a lot of times what happens is the entrepreneur is like, if for me to hit my earnout, I, I, I can't spend all my time focused on integrating our business into your business. If you want to integrate, mm-hmm. don't make me sign up for an earnout. And so like they're, they're or, each other's. Sure. Know. Or like being focused on revenue versus profitability. Like right. yeah. if you give, yeah. if you give me all the budget in the world, I can skyrocket our revenue by spending a ton on ads and acquiring new customers, but it's not going to be profitable for you. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. Did uh, you negotiate a, a budget in your agreement that you were allowed to spend to grow Jura's page? Um, so we definitely, I, I remember discussing budgets and stuff yep. like that. Um, yeah, that, that was probably part of it. Um, I can't remember specifically if, if there was like a term for that, but yeah. uh, we were yeah. like, we were mostly on the same page in terms of how we, how we saw it and what we saw as the levers to growth there. Yeah. Because in your case, I mean, clearly you've got a tremendous amount of SEO experience and legal. You could have injected all of your time in building uptime legal to be the number one ranked in a bunch of natural search listings or grow Jura's page. And so there's that natural tension. So obviously those are things you guys work through to try to how would you carry? Mm-hmm. I know you can't speak specifically about your or not, mm-hmm. but if you talk more generally, like some more, some people refer to their earnout as like a prison sentence. <laughs> mm-hmm. Others are more favorable. Like, what words would Let's you see. use to describe what it felt like to be? So, in um, no, I guess I, um, I don't think I, I don't think anything about 
working with uptime was a prison sentence. Certainly. Um, I like, we like to this day have a good working relationship. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I like, since they've acquired us, they've acquired other, uh, marketing companies as well. And they have, um, yeah, they're like a very, you know, smart company. Um, in terms of like, I guess, um, you know, talking about, talking about structures of deals and things like that, you, you're talking about, you know, you're talking about like, all right, so like different packages that you could accept different options. And so some things to think about of like, well, what could be on the table for us? So I know some people when they want to sell, you're like, all right, I want to just give me a stack of cash and let me walk away. Um, uh, others are like, well, acquiring companies are like, well, I want you to stay on for six months or a year transition, sure. help us, help us integrate. And then you can go away. Um, some are like, well, we want some sort of performance guarantee that like this all doesn't come crashing down the second How you leave. How long was your out earnout? Um, cannot speak to that. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Um, but I guess one thing that, uh, like might be an option for like, in terms of like a negotiate, like in terms of negotiating, like if you are negotiating something like an earnout, um, like you might have your projections, they might have their projections. Um, one thing that could make things more like, uh, a, be a better deal for you is have some sort of like minimum guarantee that, um, here are the benchmark, here are the, the marks that we want to hit at which point different bonuses or things like that trigger. But at the very least, we're going to have a, a minimum threshold, uh, so that if we, let's say close closed your company tomorrow and, and send you packing, uh, that you would still, uh, get what, what would be like, get the minimum required under the agreement. So got it. Um, got it. Having some sort of floor to any kind of earn out yeah. piece. Yeah. You can, I mean, you can get very, you can get creative with these, with these things if, if you want to. And you're a lawyer. So who better to get creative than, <laughs> than Oh yeah. Another thing is don't be your own lawyer. Hire, like if, if you're selling, if you're selling your own company, I hired a lawyer. I hired a, a lawyer who does M&A work huh. because I'm not an M&A lawyer. Like sure. I could read a contract. Um, and I'm like, all right, this looks like a contract, but I don't know necessarily if there are provisions that are important things that I'm missing so um, even you hired a lawyer. Even me, I'm, I'm not a, I'm That's not amazing. an M and I'm not an M and A lawyer. I would absolutely recommend that anyone, even if you're an M and A lawyer, you're going to be like, let's say, yeah, you're, if you're an M and A lawyer, you might even want an M and A lawyer yourself, just because you're going to be too close to this and emotionally involved, and you're going to want someone who is more objective to be able to be in your ear and give you feedback and, and advice. Um, yeah. Don't be your own lawyer. And yeah, if you've like a lot of small businesses, you're like, if you've seen enough contracts and things like that, you've probably drafted your own contracts. Um, I've drafted plenty of contracts over the years, even though I don't have necessarily all the formal experience in the world at drafting contracts and agreements. But even so um, when you're, you know, dealing with, uh, dealing with a buyout, uh, you really want to make sure you get it right. And you get everything that, that, uh, you've agreed to in, in at least in substance. And so, 
Yeah. You don't want to skimp on that. Yeah. Great point. I have a, a, a different question that's mm -hmm. goes back to the entire journey. I realized it was a, like a three-year journey before uptime. Mm -hmm. You and I spoke offline and I looked at your LinkedIn profile and you went to Northeastern, mm -hmm. which is, I think US News and World Report ranks them as one of the top 10 entrepreneurship programs in the United States, undergrads. Mm -hmm. so there's Babson's always number one and Indiana, there's a few, but Northeastern's up there as, mm -hmm. as one of the top entrepreneurship programs in the United States. What do you wish you had learned about entrepreneurship through college that you came to learn through actually running a company? Oh gosh. Um, maybe it's not even so much like business, like course knowledge, like a, a, a very large amount of what I've learned in terms of being a business owner was stuff I learned on the job. Like I got, like, I wouldn't say that any of the course materials I had related to marketing, learning the four P's of marketing or anything like that were particularly helpful as opposed to just getting into content marketing and SEO myself, reading everything I could and learning how to implement all of that um, in terms of like operations and building a productized business. We learned kind of doing. Um, You're not making a good <laughs> plug for Northeastern here. <laughs> I, I know it's like, maybe it's not a plug for like college necessarily. Like a lot, I mean, I think like college, college's teaching regarding entrepreneurship has been, uh, I think, I think has been evolving, especially like with Northeastern as an example, since I left Northeastern, they developed a, an incubator for startups and uh, I had been involved in the startup incubator and I've seen what they like, there's their incubator is very good. And like that extracurricular outside of coursework stuff has been like, I think much more impactful. Um, like I, I remember in like courses, like we have courses where the deliverable at the end of the year was a business plan or a marketing plan. Um, and that's all good until you need to execute on these things. And you're not going to necessarily be referring to a business plan or a marketing plan every day. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, maybe I would have, maybe, maybe I would like in hindsight, I don't, I don't even know. Um, I think probably a more valuable thing that is, I don't, isn't really, I don't know. I don't know that it's taught is like on the, on the mental aspect of running your own business, the resilience that you need. I, I remember, uh, in undergrad, we had one speaker who was, uh, like, a, a CEO of a, of a small business, and he was like wicked tired. He was like, just like so beat and like really dealing with some burnout. And I'm like, oh, wow. Um, like he's trying to answer questions, but he's also like really tired. And it's like clearly like being like being at the helm of this. Um, there are deep other questions that we need to ask that we're not even thinking about because we're not at this stage yet. But um, uh, maybe it would in like, moving forward, it would probably be good if there were some like aspects of like addressing like mental health and well-being as, as a founder and running a business. Cause you know, it, it's tough out there. It's 
it's an emotional roller coaster. You're going to have highs and lows and uh, being able to tackle all of that. What was uh, your lowest was, point in Juris oh, Page? Like your emotional um, nadir, uh, as, it, as it were. I mean, lowest point, probably early, like relatively early on. Um, uh, I like, we, you know, we were burning money, spending on different marketing initiatives and things weren't moving. Like it wasn't paying for itself, uh, as quickly as I wanted, as quickly as we would have wanted it to. And we're like faced with the prospect, like, oh, are we going to have to shut this down and get real jobs? Um, and that's tough. Like when we're like, we're, when my co-founder and I are like burning through our, our savings and we have rent to pay. Um, there were definitely a few times where like through the course where we were like, okay, we like, we don't know if this is, if, if this is going to go anywhere, we haven't proven that this is going to work. Um, like it's funny, like in hindsight, like we were just like, really, we were just like a few, like from me being at that point, we were a few months away from like things really popping off and us hitting the stride, but it was a like it was it was definitely like a lot of work and there were definitely highs and lows like whenever At the time it felt like you're never yeah no. especially like if early stages when one when you lose one big client or you lose a bunch of potential sales deals um, that can have that has like a much bigger impact on you and you're like uh, and you're like okay I don't I don't I don't know if if we're building the right thing that people want I don't know if what we're doing wrong because it doesn't seem like it's hitting. Uh, should we should we continue doing this? Are we are we being stubborn by, by right. keeping doing this? And like you, because there's that entrepreneurial folklore, right? Where you know you stick to it forever, and there's always that question that that uh, you know that 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 comes to mind. You know, is 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 grit the most important thing that drives determined success or? Well, the, you know, or, or it, should it's shut tough. Down when it's not right. It's tough because like you see successful businesses and it's like, all right, well, we just hustled and kept hustling, mm. but that's survivorship bias. It's mm. like you hear, you hear celebrity actors who are like, well, I just hit the grind for years and years. And then eventually I got the, the career defining role and that was great. But there are so many more like failed actors, right? Like there are statistics about failed businesses and, sure there. um, and but you're typically only hearing from the ones that that made it work, and so it's it is, it is tough. And uh, where am I going with this? <laughs> That's I'd love to know where you're going next because you've sold Juris Page, you've done your earn mm -hmm. at uptime, you're into something new. It's called Postaga. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Sure. So one thing that we that kind of like from our experiences at, and in doing digital marketing is that um, there are many different variables that go into Google's search engine algorithm to determine what shows up first and highest in the rankings. Um, but one thing that we know pretty soundly is that the like there is a very high correlation with the quality and quantity of links from other sites to your website affecting your ranking in search. So if you get, if you have other high quality authoritative websites linking to your website, your website is going to rank better in search. Um, the challenge is 
getting other websites to link to yours um, doesn't nece doesn't necessarily happen automatically, um, and it, a lot of it it has involved typically like manual outreach efforts, like reaching out to different domains, being like, hey. Um, I saw that you wrote this really great blog sure. post. Um, would you be able to include a link to this post that I have that's very relevant and on topic and provides a great resource for your audience as well? Um, a lot of the process that we saw was very manual and time and labor intensive and just wasn't, for an agency, wasn't scalable and deliverable for our clients or for ourselves. So basically, we built Postaga as a platform that helps automate and streamline outreach, cold outreach for link building, for digital PR, and also for sales. So basically, if you want to, if you want your content to rank better in search, you need other blogs to link to it. So we find our tool has a pretty powerful AI. We can analyze your content, give you recommendations of what other types of sites would be interested in your content, pitch them uh, with a very personalized, tailored pitch to get them to link to you and uh, earn links that way. That's really um, cool. And so it's called yeah. Postaga. What's yep. the URL? P-O-S-T-A-G-A dot com. Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes at builttosell.com. Andy, yeah. thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks, John. This has been fun. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.